Hello and welcome to Metaphors of EdTech, a podcast by me, Martin Weller. In this podcast, I talk about metaphors of educational technology. There's an accompanying book published by Athabasca University Press, which you can check out. It's free to download or you can buy the print copy. And in each episode notes, I'll put links to interesting articles or things that are relevant. So check those out. Now, on with the episode. In this episode, I'm going to look at two different metaphors that A, I think are quite fun and playful, but also I think help us explore educational technology in quite a, a broad sense. And the first of these is one dear to my heart. It's about a Welsh castle. I know, that's just what you're thinking. Not another educational technology metaphor about a Welsh castle. But here we go. So uh, the castle in question is Castlecoch, and I apologise for my Welsh pronunciation there. Um which means Red Castle, uh, and it's just up the road from where I live, in fact. Um, and I think it's, for, I'm going to use it as a, a metaphor to explore why is educational technology so attractive to uh, software, startups, billionaires, uh, venture capital? I mean, there's an obvious answer to that, which is money. Uh, you know, the higher education market is worth approximately six, $6 trillion, you know, so getting a good slice of that is worthwhile. But I think there's something more to it as well. And that's what I want to explore with this metaphor. So first of all, some background about Castlecock, in case you don't know about it. Um, so it was built by the third Marquis of Butte uh, on the site of, a, of an 11th century castle uh, in the 1800s. Now, the Marquis of Butte was fabulously wealthy. It was during the uh, Industrial Revolution. And sort of he owned all the ports that were uh, exporting coal all over the world. He was reported to be the richest man in the world, the kind of... Uh, Jeff Bezos of his time. He was also uh, really into medieval architecture. He was kind of medievalist. And during uh, Victorian times, there was a big craze for all this kind of stuff. Um, And so what he did was he employed uh, one of the chief architects, William Burgess of this style, to build on the side of this this old castle, uh, a kind of fairy tale, romantic castle, which he was going to use as his hunting lodge. I mean, he couldn't just have a little sort of hut somewhere in the forest no he needed to have a, a whole fairy tale castle uh, and he did that and it, and you can visit it today and it, it looks fantastic and it looks like one of those sort of castles you see in, in germany uh, but things you can see it a long way into cardiff you can see it up the valley up the valley and it's um you have to understand the context this was all taking place in so during that time uh, particularly in wales you know the industrial revolution was taking place and unrest was rife there were chartists who were uh, campaigning for uh, rights. There was very strong trade unions being developed. Uh, and not long ago, they'd had what's called the Rebecca riots in West Wales, which uh, overthrew lots of toll houses. And we're going to come on to that as a different metaphor. But they were kind of quite worried about uprest, um, unrest and uprising uh, from the Welsh people. Um, and the newly wealthy, as Marcus Abute was, wanted to kind of demonstrate their, their longevity, their history. And so what the castle does, it, it sends a message, because you can see it from everywhere. And what it says is, we are immutable and unchanging. We've always been here. No need to worry about us being super wealthy. We're just part of the background. That's what's there. you know. Uh, and it gives them a kind of validity. And so I think that's quite similar to how people like uh, Bill Gates, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, etc., want to get into education. Um, you know, for a start, I think, you know, the money part aside, and I'm sure they want to do good things, and they see education as being something that, that's that's fundamentally seen as a good thing. You know, not, not many people argue for for less education, 
Um, and also, but the thing is, edu education has been around for a long time. It kind of has substance to it. Uh, and so I think what we see is this kind of desire by these newly super rich to position, position themselves and perhaps more fundamentally the whole kind of Silicon Valley approach in a kind of dominant position in the, in the digital landscape in the same way that a castle is in the, in the physical landscape. So there's this kind of desire by the, the newly powerful and wealthy to ally themselves with these symbols of longevity. Uh, in the physical world, this was castles and manor houses. That's why they like to invest in all those. But in the digital world, you don't have these kind of things. So often what they do is align themselves with things like education, medicine, governance, those kind of things that have been around for a long time. What I think is interesting there and slightly ironic is that often education is decried for being slow to change. But actually, that's kind of the thing that these people want to buy into. They want that credibility. Um, and so just I'm not saying that means we should necessarily not allow people to come into education or reject them. But I think often it's portrayed as higher education in particular is getting something from these people and it needs their help. But really, they want something in return also, apart from the money part. Um, and so we shouldn't sell ourselves cheaply in higher education. It has something that they don't. It has this kind of cachet, this value for them that's really important to lots of people. And just like with the castle, they want those symbols to exist and to say to people, you know, we're here for a long time. We're here for the long run. It's you can rely on us. We kind of are solid and you don't get that for nothing. So, you know, just be careful what you're, you're selling, I think, in terms of higher education. In the next uh, metaphor, I'm going to look at the uh, idea of rewilding edtech. So we'll come to that in a minute. The metaphor I'm going to talk about now is that of rewilding. Uh, but before we do that, I just want to give a big flashing caution. I think um, metaphors drawn from nature are probably the most prevalent ones you sort of come across. Uh, and I think actually probably the most dangerous, uh, often making appeals to what is deemed natural and applying it to any form of human enterprise has led to kind of justifications of things like social Darwinism, misogyny, repression, with the implication that certain states or behaviours are natural and therefore we shouldn't know anything about them. So I would always urge caution when someone is drawing on a metaphor from nature. So with that caveat in mind, let's move on to think about uh, rewilding. So rewilding can be uh, defined as the, the restoration of an ecosystem to a less managed one, where plants and animals that cannot flourish in an intensively farmed or cultivated land can once again grow sustainable populations. Um, a kind of famous example of this is the reintroduction of bulls from Canada into Yellowstone Park in uh, America in 1995. And I think this has largely been deemed a success with the bulls themselves flourishing but also an, an impact upon the ecosystem as a whole. So what we saw was by uh, wolves coming in, they uh, hunted elk and, and helped control those elk numbers, but not cause a kind of collapse in those elk numbers. And what that did was um, meant the height of willow saplings could increase because they weren't being grazed so aggressively. Uh, and also we saw things like um, grizzly bear numbers increased because there were more carcasses of elk for them to feed on and so on. And this is an example of what uh, biologists term trophic cascade, where uh, you get the introduction or removal of an apex predator can cause changes throughout an ecosystem. So it's not just the, the one change we're looking for, but rather the, the implications throughout an ecosystem. So think about uh, educational technology now. Uh, when 
and the sort of early internet was around and we were thinking about uh, applications of the internet to education. Um, it was often very kind of experimental, under the control of the individual, very creative. I ought to say as an aside, um, generally when I talk about education technology in the context of these, these podcasts, I do mean kind of internet, digital-based education technology. But I work at the Open University and for a very long time, you know, education technology had nothing to do with computers. It was about you know, how you design print. So, so just education technology doesn't have to be digital and networked. That's kind of how we're, I'm using it at least as a shorthand in, in this sense. Yeah, so that, those early days of uh, ed tech, uh, sort of the end of the 90s, perhaps um, into the early 2000s, well, when people experimented with things like wikis and blogs and how, how might we use these in education, um, was kind of very uh, creative and, and sometimes a bit flaky, you know, but it was all fun. We could all do things um, and very innovative, I think. And so, but as it became, as e-learning, as it was called then, became more mainstream, there was a necessary drive to make it kind of more robust and in a sense then it became much more controlled. And this is perhaps uh, typified by introduction of the virtual learning environment, VLE, or LMS learning management system. So a kind of enterprise system that is applied across the university. And in many ways, that's a really good thing. So students have both a, a robust system that they can interact with. It's not going to go down sometimes. It's fairly easy to use, but also it's the same system. So not having to learn a new system every time they go onto a new module. One's being run by a particular educator off his own little laptop and another one's a bit of software that someone's brought in from somewhere else. Um, and so that was kind of really useful, but I think it's also lost. It also meant we did have a kind of loss of innovation. In many ways, a kind of loss of excitement, I think, too. You know, We talk about, instead of talking about exciting new pedagogies and ways of using technology, we started talking about roadmaps for implementation and, and new versions of the VLE software. Uh, so you can kind of think of in our metaphor here as the VLE is the kind of equivalent to this aggressive monoculture of intensive farming that doesn't really allow anything else to grow and flourish alongside it. So in our metaphor, rewilding would be to allow for some more experimental applications of technology to take place. Uh, and in the book, I give some examples like uh, the Splot, which are people like Brian Lamb and Alan Levine have played, which is a really simple way for trying to get people to engage in things like blogging. We can see just it's also just allowing people to experiment a bit more around the edges and not having to say you can only do what's inside the BLE and these kind of very stripped down and controlled uh, technologies. So, but that inevitably involves a, a lessening of control in some respects. And I think there's a certain tension here between what students want, what they expect, and what people want to do that might be experimental and allow them to learn new tools and things. So with that kind of caveat about uh, the dangers of a, a nature metaphor in mind, I think rewilding does give us some way to think about, okay, what, what's the equivalent of introducing wolves into our ecosystem? But also there are other ways of rewilding which are more kind of bottom-up, if you like, which are uh, reintroducing small crops, small plants that kind of can grow and be allowed to flourish, and then they attract different types of uh, animals to them. So, you know, what are the equivalents of allowing those different shoots to, to flourish within our technology ecosystem. Um, so I, I think that's worth exploring. I've, I've seen rewilding being, being used a lot though, and I, I think it might be a metaphor who's, that's already being overused as it were.
but I think there is something in there for us to, to think about in terms of how we deploy technology uh, within a higher education institution. Thanks for listening to Metaphors of EdTech. Remember to subscribe if this is your bag uh, and also check the episode notes for any useful links and fun things there. Thank you.